This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So I'll go. So as a monastic show on just outlined for us, uh, this is a three-month period of uh, intensive practice, committed intensive practice, which is open to students, non-students, anyone who wants to participate. Um, the you know a tendency may be to think of it as uh, check boxes that we have to do and required to do. Um, but it's much broader than that. Each person, most of the people practicing Angkor at home, uh, and uh, co-join their practice with the temple, with the monastery, uh, because there are requirements to, to attend workshops and retreats. Uh, but almost everybody is a layperson, and most everybody is like us. And um, as to the question, can lay people realize themselves? That's what the whole thing's about. Here's one way how. We should remember and recall that as part of the Yango, there's a chief disciple who is um, stepping forward to uh, take the position of uh, head training person. In this case, it's Sirio, whose name is mean, means Dragon's Vow. And he's... Uh, He's been practicing a long time. He started practicing with Meizumi Roshi in Mexico City a long time ago and continued studying. In 2009, became a student of the Mountains and Rivers Order. Uh, he's been a therapist for 50 years. It's a lot of suffering, <laughs> both before him and in him. <laughs> um, and that chief disciple position is a training position. Um, it, uh, it's an invitation for a student to make the transition to being a, a senior, a white robe person, if they're a lay person, to come forth and lead, be an example, and to face the challenges in leading. Um, as is often pointed out from the Sangha's perspective, that's one perspective, seeing the chief disciple as an example. Uh, and uh, a demand for leadership from them, from the uh, perspective of the chief dis- disciple. Oh my God! <laughs> you know? uh, but that's the passage. That is the passage that each one of us is already making and entering practice. And so they'll sit up at the front of the zendo. They'll um, uh, be an example. Uh, there are three sessions, one a month, and the last one. Uh, They'll be studying intensively with uh, Shugen Roshi and working on a koan and presenting that koan to Dharma encounter, to the Sangha at the end. So it's fully a rite of passage. There are other aspects to it. And with each ango, there's a, a focus. And the focus is the point. And it's interesting to me, um, when I came to... Uh, the MRO from a different lineage, we didn't do Ango. And 
the way I experienced practice, which is the only way I knew, was kind of this way. And in, it revolutionized my um, perspective of Ango to understand that this is a baseline. And we're not going to raise that baseline generally on our own. Um, each of us have our own imperative, but still settle in a baseline. And so we need help. And here's the help. And it's not that any one single ango can make a transformative difference, although it can. But when you do ango practice on a regular basis, and nobody can do every ango, um, but when you do it on a regular basis, it is transformative. That's my experience. That's what I see around me, if you truly enter ango practice. As best you can, which is individually shaped by you, by your commitments that you choose to make within the matrix that's offered, and by your willingness. You know, so for the first week, as Monastic Shoan kind of said, it's all exciting. How about now? <laughs> you know? And so that's inevitable. Uh, but there are plenty of resources, uh, from session to talks online to um, your increased sitting that you're making a commitment to do, which is not the law, the Dharma law of the land. It's a um, commitment which is an intent to do the best you can. And during those three months, you're living your life, and things happen. Babies cry, and jobs demand, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to wake up to reality. That sometimes is the reality we're trying to wake up to. So to be respectful of our lives within the context of Ango, rather than invite defeat. So the, the focus of this Ango is uh, a passage from Dogen, uh, Refrain from Unwholesome Action. And Master Dogen says, refrain from unwholesome action. Do wholesome action. Purify your own mind. And this is one of the presentations of the three pure precepts, which start this way, and then delineate in the subsequent precepts the specifics of this, how we might refrain from unwholesome action, how we might do wholesome action, how we purify our own mind. And Dogen says, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. And I'm going to interpret as I go along here rather than just read it through. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. Practice is the process of becoming a Buddha. Literally becoming a Buddha. Um, No holds barred here. Becoming a Buddha. Now you already are a Buddha. So how do you become what you already are? You have to discover that which is already there. So this is the teachings of all Buddhas. This teaching has been authentically transmitted from earlier Buddhas to later Buddhas of the future as the seven original Buddhas, general precepts in the ancestral school. I didn't read that very consistently, but this is the teaching that's been transmitted. This is what gets transmitted from teacher to new teacher to new teacher since the time of the Buddha and before. That's what the reference to the seven original Buddhas are, to the Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha. Later Buddhas received three precepts from earlier Buddhas, 
This teaching is not limited to the seven original Buddhas. It is the teaching of all Buddhas. Thoroughly investigate this point. And that's pointing, it's the teaching of all Buddhas. It's the teaching that we are entering into and receiving and promulgating through our own life. So that that tension between our inherent Buddha nature and the realization of that inherent Buddha nature is through refrain from unwholesome actions, do wholesome actions, purify your own mind. This Dharma way of the seven original Buddhas is always the Dharma way of the seven original Buddhas. That's it. It's, that's the whole way. Transmitting and receiving these precept, these precept Buddhas is a mutual activity. It always goes both ways, from Buddha to Buddha. This is the teachings of all the teachings and practice and the enlightenment of hundreds, thousands, myriads of Buddhas. So, refrain from unwholesome actions. And by the way, as I'm speaking, I'm, to a certain extent, channeling uh, Shugen Roshi. I'm channeling my own internal practice, and however that manifests in me. And I'm trying to communicate through this body and mind my understanding. So I hope, for those of you who heard Roshi uh, or listened to the live stream, that there are echoes, that I'm faithfully doing my best for you to hear this Dharma, because it's crucial. Unwholesome action. What is that? It's what is not life-affirming. Not in accord with things as they are, with their true nature. Unwholesome action. Holding us to delusion, creating discord, fragmented and a series of distant and fra- distance and fragmentation, creating disharmony and division. There it is. What is wholesome? Obviously the opposite. Delusion that's illuminated. Now, pause there. Delusion that is illuminated. Not we're getting rid of anything. We're not getting rid of delusion. Nobody knows how to do that. No delusions have been gotten rid of ever. Especially yours. (laughs) Not mine, but yours. What is wholesome? Delusion illuminated which simply means in accord with our true nature, peaceful and complete. Dogen said, this teaching has been authentically transmitted from earlier Buddhas to later Buddhas. This is the whole of the Buddha Dharma. Nothing's left out here. And look how personal this is. Refrain from unwholesome action. Who's that directed at? Do wholesome action. Purify your own mind. By implication with these, we we frame it. uh, Do wholesome action for others. 
which is purifying your whole mind. This is the whole of the three bodies of the Buddha manifesting in your body as your life, the three bodies. Particularly the Manakaya Buddha. The realization within your particular body and mind. You, as you, not as something different, not as another person, not with other characteristics, you, in your practice, in your confusion, in your realization. Reframe from, Dogen says. So Dogen expresses this from both the absolute and in everyday reality. Reframe from. He urges us in this teaching to see unwholesome action from the awakened perspective. That's what the precepts offer us. Guidance within our own delusion of how to wake up, to take up the awakened perspective. It may or may not be our perspective at that point, or we may attach to it, or we may fumble it, or it doesn't matter. We practice it. From the, so see it from the awakened perspective so that it does not fall into one side of the absolute or the other side of the relative. So this is what he's about to say. So please listen carefully because it's easy to get lost here. Unwholesome action is not refrain from. I mean, everybody knows what refrain from means. Don't do that. It is just refrain from. And I would place the emphasis on the jest. For example, a spring pine is neither non-existent nor existent. It is refrained from. Autumn chrysanthemums is neither non-existent nor existent. It is refrained from, just refrained from. All Buddhas are neither existent nor non-existent. They are refrained from. Pillars, lantern, whisk, staff, the ordinary objects within his time and place, are neither existent nor non-existent. They are refrained from. Self is neither existent nor non-existent. It is refrained from. Studying in this way actualizes the fundamental point. And people say, Dogen doesn't offer koans. What does it mean to refrain from? There's no real subject-object there. Refrain from holds it all. There's nothing outside that. Just refrain from. Now the sentence continues, unwholesome unwholesome action. But that's a given. That's an absolute given. It doesn't need to be said. And there's an implication there that in our reframing from unwholesome action, evil, unwholesome action, has to be self-created. We have to create it. So, don't do that. But it's not just don't do that. Reframing from has no boundary. So we condition each other. We are deluded together. 
and we awaken together. Our suffering is also mutual activity. That's from purify your mind. Realizing that at any level, intellectually, considering it as a possibility, realizing it as your own body and mind. So our suffering arises together. There are vast implications to that. We're going to get to that. Our realization arises together. And our socially constructed self, which cannot be separated from our personal delusions and realizations, arises together, each individual, but arises together. We're in a socially constructed environment. And who we see as ourself arises for all of us. And we're in relationship in our individual arisings. We're interconnected. The Buddha's teaching, teachings arise in a particular world, particular society, specific to that time and place. And that's the only way that the Buddha Dharma can be taught, is to reference our time and place. We can't teach the Buddha Dharma in our society, in China in 800. There's no relationship. There is, in a deeper sense, of course, a relationship, but we won't relate to it. So the only way to teach is to reference this time and place, social norms, religious beliefs, social structures, all towards a particular purpose. And, you know, loaded question, what purpose? Not so loaded. It's obvious. Liberation. That's it. The only thing the Buddha taught. So... We're not trying to destroy the system of society. But we are trying to to destroy the suffering that exists as a result of that system of society. And we are trying to destroy it. So here we are, in this culture, in this environment, in this social time. And how do we bring forth the true heart of our being? the unsurpassable heart of our being, which reaches everywhere and yet is you. We use many substitute words for that. You know, compassion, love, intimacy. But how do we bring it forth within this particular world to be able to dissolve the boundaries while respecting the boundaries Dissolve them and respecting. There's two sides to that in order to address and dissolve suffering. So we're embedded in systems here. Deeply embedded. 
So one system is patriarchy. And what is patriarchy? It's dominance. It's aggression. It's suppression. It's suffering. So it doesn't disregard the kind of masculine emphasis on that, but it takes the energy of that and projects it to the ways that all of us do experience it internally and externally. The Buddha said, Dukkha is not having what you want. Or to say this another way, getting what you want, dominance, aggression, whatever me needs, whatever me demands would be a better way of saying it. And implicit in that patriarchy, in that aggression, and I've, I've learned as my personal practice just how subtle and profound and wide aggression is and how easily it is for me and invite you to look as well to step into that, to be that. And it's not just in the obvious bullish way. My sign is the bull. Duh. I mean, there's all forms of aggression. Have you ever studied passive aggressiveness? Passive aggressiveness is an expert form of aggression. So since patriarchy is domination and aggression, where do you go if I don't want you? I don't want you in my society. Or I don't want you in my zendo. Or I don't want you XXX. More dukkha. More separation. An extension of that is white supremacy. Another form of patriarchy. And in that patriarchy, my skin skin color is elevated over your skin color if you're a different skin color. And by the way, even if you're not a different skin, skin color with aggression, I'll elevate me over you. But particularly with the skin color, referring to, to white supremacy. So we build systems to cordon off these disagreeable people And I carry those systems. We all do, but I'm talking personally. Embedded in me wherever I go. It's built into the model. And what are some other systems that you and I are embedded in? Housing. The housing system is set up. You don't belong there. You belong over there. Healthcare. You know, when you look at systems, they exist. The top reason systems exist, no matter what they say, is to perpetuate that system. 
And so we really have to be careful with systems, including this system. Sports, a system. A system that embodies racism and white supremacy, more subtly, but there. Entertainment, social support, prisons. It's remarkable when you look at education or prisons because it's so graphic that what we're actually doing is preserving the fundamental system of aggression and uncolor supremacy, whiteness. It's remarkable to see that. I've spent enough time in jails, not as a prisoner, but as trying to address something within that prison. to realize that it's a system of overt domination, paying lip service to rehabilitation at infrequent moments. So all these systems foster me, foster my protection, and it extends in every direction. Wherever I look, I see it. I can't not see it, actually. Well, I can not see it. And so they extend in every direction in order to create the places that I don't have to deal with, unseen. And all these systems are interlinked. They're not self-standing, self-sufficient. They all have a cohesive interdependence, mostly invisible, yet profounding underlying all these systems. And these systems originate in the very founding of our country, which in the name of the established system uphold what I wish to have, uphold what I wish to avoid, design these systems for me, specifically for me, with one exception, white, male, owner of property, although I don't actually own property, but if you go back historically, that was there. Christian. And that owner of property includes humans. Property. Which permeates in all directions, such as the marriage ceremony. And if you don't fit into that system, If you don't decide you really want to be in that system, it doesn't matter. You're going to be forced to be in it. Or we're going to kill you or do something equivalent to that. Isolate you, bar you. And we transmit these systems from generation to generation. And I submit our history is thus that. It's obvious. 
the system was set up from the beginning this way, and even before that, in ways before this particular country came into existence. And it's transmitted from generation to generation, so deeply embedded, embedded that the origins of systemic racism and male dominance in all its many forms, applicable to all of us, keep that in mind, because we're all embedded in the system, but it's invisibly woven in our beings. We don't see it for the most part. But we see it only on our terms. That's the important part. Yeah, I'll see it. And, you know, I'll see it in the terms that ensure that I'm comfortable seeing it. And this is being done in the name of freedom and representative democracy. And, you know, that history of this is not, for the most part, evident in the educational record. Why not? It's too disturbing. We're not going to put it there. He who, he who controls the educational system controls the seeming reality of the system we're embedded in. So this occurs not just in the personal level, that this practice, especially Zazen, can so clearly expose, but on every single level, fully present, yet fully invisible. It's got an invisible cloak on it. Invisible to the mind that will not inquire, to the mind that will not investigate the suffering of others, to the mind that refuses to acknowledge that we are often just asleep. It's called ignorance. That we refuse to acknowledge that the suffering of others is not just our suffering as well. Not just that. We can kind of intellectually handle that. But that you and I are together creating that separation and this suffering. We're actively doing that. But I don't want to look because it hurts. How did we get here? What can I, we do to address this place that we have all created? I have the word unconsciously that I wrote, but I'm not so sure it's that. I would say repressed. And this is our world. This is the world we're in. There are other perspectives of this world. There's a prominent TED speaker who's going around saying how great the world is, how much improved, how much less violence. I think Pincus, Pincus. And he's got a point from the metrics as we destroy, physically destroy our environment, as we shift all the power and wealth to the however you want to measure that one-tenth of one percent of the people, which then buys more power and wealth and embeds the system even deeper. And more than that, creates the illusion that they deserve that because, after all, they are that wealthy, powerful. So it's just, you know, capitalist evolution. Those who got it deserve a definition. 
So dukkha is the action of trying to manipulate and control so, so we fulfill our desires. Number two, right? In the Buddha top four hits, right? <laughs> and if you want to know patriarchy or white privilege, it has to be personal. No additional system, by definition, is going to address this. I want to say that again. No additional system, by definition, is going to address it, unless it's personal. What does personal mean? You. And I'm not excluding me from that. So how personal, if you want to know patriarchy? How many of us have pushed and extinguished and put away thoughts that we would not allow. I always put this in dramatic physical terms. Which part of your body do you want to cut off because it offends you? That you don't want to see it? Which part of your mind do you not want to see? And how does that work? Does it work? Does it help suffering? Or does it create more suffering? How many of us have judged ourselves harshly? Judge, jury, sentence, click, in jail. In the jail of our mind. Closed possibilities. This is the whole thing I can see. That's it. Maybe there's a tiny window at the top, but I don't want to climb up there. How many of us have judged the one next to us or across the room or in any circumstance that, adv- that advances a fixed opinion of others, which other- always upholds our separate sense of self? That fixed opinion? I mean, if your experience is anything like my experience, I got a million of them. And that creates distance from my being, from your being, and suffering. The Buddha said these thoughts can only arise if the seed of the thought is present. And without knowing what we do, we water these seeds over and over and over again. So they sprout to become what we think, how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves. We're watering those seeds. And they're there. They're there because they're there in our society which is our mind. So is this truly who we are? Watering these seeds? Is that the bottom line? Do we have an option not to water them? They're there in all of us. Patriarchy, racism, all these systems are embedded in all of us in some way or another. So if it's not truly who we are, then who are we? If we're going to choose to become conscious of who we are, where do we start? How do we start? What do you think I'm going to say next? (laughs) You know where we start. This is an incredibly powerful practice. 
This is Ango. It invites us to truly look. I always say it's not free. It's not free of the suffering, of the karma of suffering, which we've created endlessly. So it's not simple. It's not quick work. The beyond fear of differences work that some of the Sangha has explored has been very difficult and challenging. And I've only been fairly peripherally involved, although in my own way I've done work. It upsets my simple apple cart. I get scared. I get frightened to let go of all that has been powerful for me. My sense of myself framed by the whole constructed sense of society that treasures me and in treasuring me denies the other. Which ironically is me as well. So I'm denying me. It really is that simple. That's what Zazen is teaching us. Do we see that subtle but ever-present aggression there? So how can we face these difficulties with a willing heart? How can we examine our mind bringing forth what is wholesome and reality-based and avoid delusion? You know what? Often my heart isn't willing. And I suspect that's true of everyone. It hurts. You know what? I don't give a shit. I rest my life on my vows. I invite you to rest your life on what your vows are. If you've taken them. If you take them. If you will take them. I'm very clear on that. I'm not polished, I'm not elegant, I'm not but I'm directly clear on that. And that saves me. That saves my ass. Because I will be dedicated to that. Amidst my confusion, amidst my bluntness, amidst my crudeness. This is the person I'm working with. What's the person you're working with? So we we do this together. And even in, we sit in an exquisite depth, when we enter into the samsaric world, it's easy for our ignorance to enter with us and be perpetuated. And it's interesting that we usually see this practice of Zen, of liberation, as intensely personal. And it is. And we each, alone on our cushion, and together as a Sangha, practice in a way that supports individual liberation. And this is what we've been taught in a way. And it's essential. But it's not enough. Not in this time and place. It's not enough. The Buddha had to work that way. If he had disrupted and destroyed the society he worked in, worked within, he would not have survived. They would have killed him. And look what happens to people who do this when they destruct it enough, destroy it enough, challenge it enough. We kill them. 
I don't know how present that is in the young, present generation, but in me, Kennedy, Kennedy, King. Evers, many, many, many others, most I don't know about. Jesus? So the Buddha worked individual by individual, and that was what he had to do. This is different time and place. Each of us is grounded in the individual practice of awakening. But the means of communication, of travel, of linkages to one another are very different. The teachings can be brought forward through many different modalities. And obviously, so can our delusions. So 30 seconds on the web will show you that. (laughs) I was reading an article recently. And it was some apparent, uh, it was some comment on, um, help me with her name, the, um, uh, the person of color who's the representative, who's really, Ilhan well, sorry. Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar. Um, perhaps, I'm not hearing. But she's taken no prisoners, so you know who I'm, and I'm loving it. And then I read the comments. And the comments were, holy mackerel, this hate and hate, and comment and comment, hate and Then I looked to where the headline was, it was Fox News. And, oh. <laughs> but it's also important that I read that. That I read that and I see that hate. And I see how, the, now that I go back and look at the headline, it's slanted in a very subtle but real way. So we live in a place where these powerful forces are at work. And so we have to be powerful. We have to be at work, which of course starts with ourself. We have to take our vows past ourself. I mean, it's not just the things I've talked about. I mean, we live in a time where we're destroying this planet. Another system which comes out of capitalism. And what's the the basic measure of capitalism? We have to keep growing. Well, any scientist who's studied this knows the growth curve. And if you don't think that's not happening, your eyes are shut. You know, and another sensitivity, which Shugan mentioned, is that it's very easy here to live in a spiritual bubble, to not look outside the bubble. And it's interesting what's going on, uh, as Roshi reports when he visits uh, joint meetings of Zen teachers or Buddhist teachers, how some sanghas haven't even taken up these questions as a question. I was just speaking to a teacher in Denver, and that question doesn't even exist for them. Now, there are some reasons for that, but it, the thought of it doesn't even exist. And they're in a very diverse community. So bubbles. 
I mean, do you see how this is set up? You want to come here? How are you going to get here? Who's going to pay? You want to go to the monastery? Got the dinero? No problem. Don't got the dinero? No monastery. You want to come to a retreat here? Well, the suggested donation is... What's the message? I'm not promoting an answer. I'm just pointing out this, the bubble we're in. So who does that exclude? You need money and time. Where does the time come from? Got a baby? Well, sure. Just download your baby to the next babysitter. Oh, really? I can do that. Can you do that? Who's not here who, can do, who can't do that? What about the subtle comfort in being with mirror images of ourself? And those who do not reflect sameness might feel in this environment. And intentionally or unintentionally. Aspects of a hostile environment. And at the same time, if we lose the safety of this precious, precious place, then the world of samsara so subtly takes off. This place has to be a sanctuary. It has to be safe. It has to be safe for everybody who wants to be here. And we have a responsibility to find ways for those who want to be here or want to be exposed to this teaching to be able to be here. And that's not free. I'm not talking economically free to you. I'm talking practice-free, emotionally free to come to grips with this. We're so used to a zero-sum game that if I give to you, you're getting and I'm losing. I mean, this is the heart of the political world that we're in right now. So there's a vital living tension with practice here of what and how to navigate this. But there's a secret here. Here's how you navigate it. We don't have an idea. We don't know. And we can't let that stop us. We cannot... Let that stop us. We have to begin. We have to fumble and find our way and create havoc and sometimes more suffering. But we have to address this. Bottom line. So this is dynamic. And it's alive. And when we personally take up these questions and begin to demand of ourselves that we inquire There are many voices that come up within us. And you know, when a strong voice arises in us, it's the only thing we hear. That's the voice that's in power and control of us. And if it's a fearful voice, that's what you're going to radiate. It's the only perspective it radiates. And so there are overt and visible voices of fear and protectionism 
that we can hide behind and justify and cleverly avoid the places of our pain that we would have to open up to. That we would have to question. That we would have to expose to ourselves and others that vulnerability in order to address this. And so the basic adjective that I've experienced to this extent in looking at this, and it's almost become cliche as, is this is messy, messy work. It's not linear. It is messy. There is figuratively blood on the floor. So it's not pigeonholed. It doesn't fit our reference system. And so here's how it goes. I cycle through fearful holding onto what I know, a sense of self-threat, a reminder to what matters to me most in my vows, and come back home and begin the cycle again. That's literally how I experience it. Luckily, this Buddha Dharma is immensely capable, profoundly capable, to help us bring the whole and entirety of our life here. To open our heart, to allow us to hear injustice, to allow us to stand on equality and reality in each of our hearts. And although this is inherent in the Buddha Dharma, it's up to each of us to manifest this, to practice this. You know, to some of you know I live on a farm when I'm not here. And when I step into the cow pasture, sometimes I go, squish. That's how the work is. And sometimes a cow comes up to me and shows her nose and invites me to meet her nose to nose, literally touching noses. That's how this work also is. And so we should, actually we need, to respect the power and gender inequalities that reside in Buddhism, indeed in here and in many sanghas, and a visible going back to the time when the Buddha was asked to ordain women. And finally, after much convincing, he said, yeah, women have Buddha nature. He actually didn't say that, but in equivalent terms. But we got some special rules that apply to them. And maybe that was the wise thing to do in his society and his time and place. But this ain't that. This is not that. But it still is in me and in you. So we have to study this and study this and study this and study it some more. You know, clumsiness and the inevitability of an expected result. And so this is Ango. I want to finish up with two things that I'm going to obliquely refer to that Shugen Roshi is going to expand on in this Ango. And it's the ten values guarding the basic beyond fear of differences work. 
So it's a list, and I'll read the list, and it'll bounce among your brains. And, but hopefully it'll echo back as the sangha proceeds. The first is trust. Cultivating and earning a confidence. They are working towards one mutual well-being and liberation. Trust in that. Trust, that's to me, is to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, particularly the Dharma and Sangha. Equity, to create just outcomes. We recognize that different treatments, including perhaps reparations, is sometimes required because of historical oppression and our varying positions in contemporary society. You get it? I'm in a position of power. You, whoever you are, are not. I'm male. I have an education that was imbued in me. You may not. The system designed it that way. There are other factors that we can't ignore. But it's a setup. So some, I'll refrain from using the adjective, gets to go to... uh, whatever Bush college went to some Ivy League college, sell cocaine and become president of the United States. And there's 500,000 kids in this borough who are selling some form of cocaine and ain't going to college and ain't going to be president. How did that happen? Courage. The ability to step forward, to be vulnerable, that's the key to me. Tolerate discomfort and hold space. Hold space for new ideas, sometimes threatening ideas. Accountability to the sangha, to the teachers, to the seniors, to the monastics, to the board, to the students, to the councils, to the practitioners are mutually responsible for upholding these values and communicating with each other. We're all in this together. Humility. Recognition of the depth of our own conditioning and the vastness of the path. Humility. We're not in a society that encourages that. (coughs) Or if it does, it encourages humility under the name of suppression. Reverence, a deep respect for each other's humanity and identities and the transformative power of the Buddha Dharma. Generosity, the willingness to embrace all our experience of Sangha with openness and appreciation. Also the willingness to give and take and feedback on the impact of our actions as part of our Dharma training. There's no permission for that. No training can take place. Whole person framework. In our study and liberation of the self, we recognize because our social identities are not experienced in isolation, they cannot be examined in isolation. I mean, we do that all the time when we sectionalize uh, sexual identities, gender identities, color identities, educational identities. Is not in isolation. The system's designed to put it in isolation. 
And we have to see past that. Cultural fluency. Knowing that we live in a structure that sets up a white supremacist culture, and that our views are conditioned by power and privilege. We commit to our ongoing learning and understanding of each other's cultural and ethical identities. I can't tell you how in so many subtle and profound ways people whose cultures are different than mine influence me, make me curious, make me wonder. <laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing because a, a few years ago, uh, Ajo and I, my wife, uh, traveled to Harrisburg, which is a few hours away, not easy to get to for a drumming circle. And there was the whole community and there was us. Never drummed in my life. We had a blast. A blast. Every permeation of culture and identity was there. And we were dancing and banging away. And it was great. It was a moment of forgetfulness of all this shit. Which made it impact Authenticity. Truly being connected with our emotions, expressions, and experience. So that's a lot. No small thing. Remember, this is not about outcomes. It's about commitment. I want to end with a poem by Lucille Clifton, who's a poet whose work I've relied on before. I think it'll be obvious who she is and where she's coming from. It's called, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. I'm going to repeat that. Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep remembering mine. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.